Hello and welcome to Demo Tapes, the music podcast that's all about hitting rewind on the bands and scenes we love. I'm Rick Martin and this my co-host is Sarah Jane Kemp. Hey Rick, how's it going? Uh, I can just about see you from behind your fringe there. <laughs> yeah, you're not the first one to have commented on this, this sort of this week and as we record now the barbers reopen kind of, so I think it's a few days from now, Monday and uh, yeah, I'm already planning on getting a sleeping bag, camping out overnight. And I, you know what, I'll probably wake up and there'll be change sat there and, uh, you know, a McDonald's coffee because, yeah, I pretty much look homeless at the moment with the way my hair's gone. Yeah, there's a good reason we don't film kind of these episodes for YouTube as well as putting them out on all good podcast platforms, you know, because I just don't think I've got the look for it at the moment. <laughs> I don't think anyone has, Rick. I'm also really excited about getting to a salon of sorts. Um, but yeah, I'd say, you know, one, one of the things I was thinking before we started recording was that you're kind of a bit of a perfect blend at the moment between Liam Gallagher and Gail Platt from Coronation Street. Remember Gail from Coronation Street? I mean, yes, still in it, her, isn't it? Yeah. Her bouffant hair. Um, I, I would say as well, it looks... <laughs> It's like you're wearing a wig. <laughs> I mean, I've literally, literally, I saw you last week, and since then, it's like a forest has erupted from the top of your head. It's absolutely brilliant. But um, I think you should definitely be getting back to the barbers as soon as possible. But anyway, uh, haircuts is definitely not for this podcast. But let's cut. See what I did there? Yeah. The chat and talk about who we've got on as a guest this week. Yeah, let's cut straight to the chase. I'll, I'll get my own little uh, little line in there. And uh, yeah, we've got Mr. Ed Cousins, a guy actually with far better hair than me from uh, when we did the interview. Uh, the guitarist with Reverend the Makers, uh, who's released his debut solo album, Fortune Favours, uh, literally today as we are uh, recording. And for that reason, been really interested to get him on. And not just to talk about the album, but also a bit of shared history. You know, listeners will know that I was kind of around Sheffield back in the day and Reverend the Makers, and actually I saw him in bands before he was even in Reverend the Makers with the Reverend, sort of bands like 1984 and spent time in the studio with them and on the road. So yeah, it was good to have a, a bit of a chinwag. I actually really love the the title of the album, Fortune Favours, because one of my favourite lyrics from a song ever is uh, a disclosure song, and it's uh, Fortune Favours the Brave, so they say. Do you think it's a really kind of captivating captivating lyric for me? And, and I think that's a really amazing title for an album but um I, yeah i'm looking forward to this one too if, if kind of only for the fact that his bandmate john mcclure uh the reverend himself was one of our most outspoken guests i think really last year when he went well, no not last year sorry a couple of years back now wasn't it um which you can find in the demo tapes archives on apple and spotify i seem to be the one giving the giving the plugs uh, mid mid um mid episodes recently don't i yeah, keep them coming, keep them coming. And I think it's interesting you mentioned there about that whole fortune favours thing, because I think he's not gone quite as far to say fortune favours the brave, but I think that's kind of what he's getting at and that it's taken that bravery to kind of step out of the shadows and, and record his own album, you know. And I think that's kind of what I wanted to get into in this interview is to find out, you know, why now? Why has he gone kind of solo now? And also get into some of his story, you know. I think another thing that I've never really heard discussed before is just how different Ed and John McClure are, you know, they've been bandmates for over 15 years, but you couldn't meet two more kind of different characters in terms of Reverend obviously being quite an in-your-face, uh, opinionated political guy, and, and Ed kind of being a bit more in the background. And even beyond that, you know, Ed was in, I don't know if you knew this, but Ed was in Alex Turner and Matt Helder's very first band uh, called Jude and Suki, way before they were in Arctic Monkeys. So I think Ed's got some great tales about kind of, not fake tales, like fake tales of San Francisco, some great tales about being in a band with those guys and kind of how they got got started out. And um, yeah, Fortune Favours, the album itself, we've had an advanced stream for a 
couple of weeks now. Uh, and I don't know about you, I just think it's it's a great solo record. It doesn't sound like someone's debut, and for him it isn't. He's been in bands, but even as a debut kind of solo record, he's, he's got so much experience that I think it kind of comes through that it's a really kind of accomplished piece of work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, all all roads seem to lead back to the Arctic Monkeys for us at the moment, don't they? Which was also one of our, which was our very first episode on demo tapes, also available on Apple and Spotify. Great plug, (laughs) great plug. Enough of the plugs. Let's get on to listen to the interview, shall we? Yeah, let's not hang around. Let's get him, uh, let's get him on the lines. Yeah, here's Ed. So on the line, I've got Ed Cousins, uh, guitarist in Reverend the Makers, and now a solo artist uh, in his own right. And your debut solo album, Fortune's Favour, uh, is going to drop later this month. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been a long old uh, long old journey to get to this point. Yeah, it's it's out. Uh, I think as we're talking, it's out this, this Friday, so that's the 9th of April. So yeah, it's uh, it was due out last year sometime, um, but obviously with the with the way things went with the pandemic and, and all the rest, we, we, we decided to put it back uh, to the beginning of this year. And then the second kind of lockdown hit and we put it back again. <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah. And that's not to mention the kind of uh, journey of about probably 10 or so years before that, that I've uh, been sort of wrestling with the idea mm. of solo projects and trying to, trying to actually put something down that I was kind of happy with and, and that I felt was good enough, you know, so yes, it's uh, it'd be a relief to get it out, and uh, I'm dead excited to be honest. And they do say kind of fortune favors the brave. You haven't gone quite that far in the title, but is yeah. there a sense that you needed to find that bravery to go solo after kind of being a supporting musician in in your other band? You know, a key musical driving force, but not the forefront. Is bravery or confidence like how yeah. how would you kind of describe that feeling? Yeah, I mean the the confidence definitely, and and a bit of self belief, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, because. You know, I've, I've always done music, you know, since I was in sco- at school, I've been in, in bands and, and, you know, writing music and, and, and everything else. So that all kind of comes fairly naturally, you know, and in, in Reverend, I've obviously, I've, I, I was kind of like the uh, the music guy, you know, taking doing a lot of that stuff. And, and the, as you say, sort of behind the scenes almost, um, behind uh, John, who was obviously larger than life and, and very sort of, very sort of loud as a front man. So it was quite easy to sort of sit back and and, and do all that really, but uh, yeah, so to think about doing a, a thing on my own as a solo artist, um, yeah, find, definitely finding the confidence and, and the self belief to to sort of to step out and, and do that, and particularly sort of as I said, the music was fine, but it was the lyrical side, you know, all that kind of putting my kind of personal kind of vibe out there. Yeah, it, it's taken it's taken me a while to to get my head around it and 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 kind of you know when you're always comparing yourself to, to your peers aren't you and so obviously John's a great mm. person there's mm. people like Alex Turner you know in the, you know who we obviously knew really well in the early days of being in the band and stuff you know great lyricist and then Sheffield's got a brilliant tradition you've got Jarvis and, and Hawley and, and you know there's, there's loads of great lyricists so to sort of put myself out there and and you know even come close to those guys it's it was quite daunting in a way so I think yeah it's, it's taken me a minute to to kind of get my head around it and and yeah get to a point where I felt that you know I'm not suggesting for a second I'm anywhere near as good but I'm certainly happy that they're you know it stands up against mm. against stuff and I, and I was confident with again it was more of a, per, a much more personal angle of this album so yeah it's it's, it's definitely uh, taken a minute to uh, yeah to, to find the confidence to speak out in that way and, and put myself out there you know and I think there's some interesting layers to this confidence as well, because, you know, uh, I was around Reverend the Makers, well, 1984 even, 
quite early on in Sheffield and it's something I've talked about quite a lot on this podcast. And I remember back in the day, you know, you've never lacked confidence in terms of playing on stage mm. in big audiences. But even when we were around each other backstage or in recording studios, or whatever, you always seem quite reserved, not rude, never rude. <laughs> but you know, when, when I suppose when you've got someone like John McClure, Reverend, who is a larger than life character, and we'll come on to a little bit of that later yeah. on. There was always that sense that, I mean, I don't remember you ever doing many interviews, for example. It was something yeah. I never, whereas now, obviously, it's it's your thing and you're putting yourself out there to do that. So is there is there another element to that confidence as well, beyond just the music, everything else that, that comes with it? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I was talking to somebody else the other day and they, they were saying that they, was, they were surprised that I was saying about, you know, the confidence thing, because obviously, you know, getting up on stage and, and performing, you know, and over the years done you know, some some really big gigs and stuff and but that is it's a different kind of confidence that that's you know the, the sort of the stage fright or whatever that, that's a different thing to releasing something that that people can hear and, and will inevitably dissect and and think about and you know, in terms, again in terms of the lyrics and you know so it, it, yeah it's a very different kind of confidence and and as an as you pointed out as, as a natural kind of my natural way is to be a bit more quiet and sort of you know, um, yeah, reserved, um, and and yeah, let let the others do the kind of the shouting. So I was just saying those early days, I was I was definitely yeah, not I don't think I shied away from it, but I was I was as I say I was happy for other people to sort of take that spotlight at, at the time, and you know because it, it sort of fitted my natural uh, natural way of going about things. So, but obviously now you know it's it's again it's another thing I've, I've sort of the interviews and talking and. Being able to sort of express myself, I've, I've you know, I've, I've sort of learned how to do it over the last sort of two or three years, and you know, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully, I'm getting a bit better at it now and uh, it's coming a bit more natural. So we'll, we'll judge in half an hour how good you've got yeah, it. Well, yeah, yeah. I remember I saw the last Reverend or one of the last Reverend tours in in Camden, and yeah. it was one of the first gigs, and you come out front and and sing that at the piano, and I was like. Bloody hell, I remember saying to whoever I was at the gig with, he should do something on his own. You know, this this guy's got, you can actually, that's the thing that with the Reverend and the Makers, everyone in the band seems to be able to sing. You've got Joe, you've yeah, got yeah, John, yeah. Laura, now now you can add kind of you to, to, to that. So I wondered if going out on tour and, and you know, having, because I think the band's been a bit more democratised on recent albums and you've all had a bit more input. Did that help with with kind of cementing this idea that you could go solo? That actually you had that, that five minutes every night on the tour and you're like, well, actually... I can be centre stage, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, it certainly helped. Um, you know, and and yeah, I think over the last couple of Reverend albums, I'd, I'd sung uh, three or four tracks actually, and and yeah, the, the re, sort of refinding my voice in that way um, was was definitely yeah, definitely helped with with the. I mean, yeah, uh, the formation of kind of a lot of the songs that made up the the solo record, Fortune's Favour. It's um, yeah, definitely helped. And yeah, you, you're right. Obviously, within the band, obviously you've got Joe Carnell, who, who's obviously um, singer in Milburn, who, who obviously is, is a great frontman in his own right. And Laura's voice is brilliant. And yes, yeah, so we, we we were lucky that we had that kind of dynamic that we could all step out, and and it just sort of felt right to do that. And yeah, it was. Um, I think there was there was obviously a, a, a conscious effort to do that, and particularly on my part personally, it was, it was something I jumped at because, yeah, like you say, it's it's allowed me to sort of just feel my way in a little bit more, thinking and knowing at the time that I was seriously thinking about trying to actually put a proper record together rather than just sort of playing around with it, you know. So yeah, it was it was definitely a a good stepping stone. And we'll kind of return to a little bit more about Fortune's favour later in the show, but what we do like to do 
on demo tapes has hit rewind on musicians' careers. And it's fair to say there's a lot of history to go back through um, with yourself. So I kind of want to rewind. I mean, the first band I'm aware of you being in is Jude and Suki, but you have hinted you're in even more bands before that. I mean, is this something you've just done since being in school? You know, I know that you went yeah. to school with, I think some of the Milburn guys were years below or above us i think below yeah they were they were yeah sort of yeah three or four years i think something like that maybe it's even more than that god um yeah so i mean but obviously there was um yeah some guys there the Melbourne guys and obviously i was at school with john um uh, reverend so uh, that's kind of obviously where where we met but yeah i was always from about 13 i say i, I sort of started to seriously learn guitar and yeah, there was a couple of other lads um, in my year who I sort of hit it off with, and that's but the one one of them was was like a bit further on the line in terms of learning to play guitar. He was a bit better than me, so I was a bit like, "Oh, this is cool. He can actually play that Hendrix riff." Do you know what I mean? And mm. so we we just started messing around, and, and yeah, through school just just formed a couple of different bands, and then sort of coming out of school, I was I was in the same band for a few years, um, just kind of you know trying to do to do something with it, we're trying to write our own songs. But I mean, it was, yeah, as, as you can imagine, it was it was very naive. It was very sort of, um, yeah, not very good, <laughs> basically. <laughs> but, you know, it, it was, it was, it's all a learning experience. And, you know, we played loads of gigs. We did, we did all the like the kind of village pubs all around Sheffield and, and even sort of Barnsley and, you know, Doncaster and stuff. We were going out and, and it's, it's, it's quite a sort of a learning curve playing some of those places, you know. You rock up and there's 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 a load of sort of bikers or somebody just sort of watching you and you, you have hmm. somehow entertain them and you're there at you know 15 16 and there you know it's 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 definitely a bit of a baptism baptism of fire but i think as as in the long term certainly given me a really sort of good grounding in in like getting on stage and and maybe sort of talking about the confidence thing again that's that's kind of where that side of it stems from that i, I did all that so it, after doing that, you know, in some of those situations we've been in where, you know, you're trying to entertain two people stood at a bar, nothing kind of phases you after that. So, mm. Mm. Um, yeah, but yeah, I've always, I've always been in bands, always, always sort of been doing music. And yeah, it was sort of when I was at uni that I sort of hooked up with John again. And, and that's kind of where, as you say, the Judan Suki thing um, started up and, and yeah, went on from there, really. And I mean, some of those tracks are still floating around on on YouTube. And uh, I mean, even some that I, I remember from back in the day that I think disappeared. One about a man in the moon, I definitely remember. And there's uh, a couple of others that you you know listeners can find. But how would you describe the sound of that band? Because it's quite different to anything else. I think you can see some of the seeds of John becoming a frontman and things like that. But mm. musically, it was quite different. So I think the direction your career went in later. Yeah, well, I mean, Chudan Suki was it was it was very much more kind of funk orientated. It was um, yeah, very funky. We, we were into kind of like Simon and Curtis Mayfield and people like that. We were sort of big influences at the time, and yeah, so that it, it was it was trying to be a bit kind of indie, but definitely with yeah, with that kind of funky edge to it, and everything was a bit fast and furious. And yeah, we used to, we used to in fact we used to do a cover version, I think of. Um, Brothers on the Slide by Simon, which was uh, about 100 miles an hour, and but mm. really fun to do, you know. And 
again just another another sort of learning curve of, of that's the first band we sort of went out and, and did some gigs properly outside of Sheffield you know we went and did one in London at the garage and we played at the cavern and Fibbers in York all these kind of venues we, we sort of went out and, and, and did these gigs there you know and so again uh, just a, another part of the kind of the journey and and, and the learning uh, learning experience of it all really and in terms of it being a bit of a school of rock, I mean, you had a couple of fair, pretty famous pupils from another band in terms of, you know, Alex Turner and, and Matt Helders from the Monkees. So yeah. kind of how did all that how did all that come about? Because obviously you didn't go to school, with those guys, is my understanding. But no. John seemed to get to know Alex somehow. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, that, that, yeah, so they, those guys were from High Green in, in Sheffield, which is sort of north Sheffield, it's almost Barnsley, in fact um and they they knew the kind of the Milburn lads pretty well because they were all from another place sort of north called Ecclesfield so they kind of knew each other um and Milburn were obviously very early on the scene they were obviously before the Arctic Monkeys they were around sort of Jude and Suki time so they were kind of already around you know the Milburn lads and yeah I think I think it was um just a random sort of meeting John met Alex on a bus I think and they got chatting and we wanted a a rhythm guitarist and so we, we we had Alex round to John's mum and dad's and we sat in his living in, in the living room there and, and went through a couple of Jude and Suki songs and I taught him how to play them and he could do it and he was dead keen so we just thought oh, this is kind of cool you know was, you know he was into it and he asked if his mate Matt could could join as well and so he brought a pair of bongos along and <laughs> used to literally just sit on the front of the drum riser playing these bongos I don't think we ever even mic'd him up he was just there because he wanted to be there you know it was, it was they were but I mean we're talking they were like you know properly young at that point so but it was yeah it was just just a crazy time and you could see at that point Alex was just dead keen dead he was everything he was listening to he was taking it all in and learning everything and you know when we were in the studio um doing a couple of demos he'd come down just to sort of hang out he didn't necessarily even play on them he just wanted to be there and and that's that's you know that's where sort of um, the Alan Smythe connection came in, um, and he met Alan Smythe there and, and asked if he could record with his band, the Arctic Monkeys, and and the rest is history, as they say. So, yeah, funny funny kind of thing, really. Just very again coming back to the fortune and the fatalistic thing. It's mm. all these little things throughout sort of my kind of career and journey through life. It seems to have these really random sort of fortunate events that, that sort of happen you know and you're a bit older than the monkeys guys so did you teach yeah. them any stuff on you know alex would have been learning guitar at the same time but you were a few kind of years ahead you know were there were there any tunes that you taught him because I, I seem to remember the first interview i did with alex uh and i think matt and jamie cook i think was there as well that they learned like the bond theme was like the first thing they said they learned on the guitars when they got them for christmas whether that was one of the usual monkey myths i don't know but did you did you teach them the Bond theme or were they more not, advanced I, I, no, 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 I certainly didn't teach them the Bond, the bond theme. That's, that's been great. Um, no, I think I think I think obviously, as I said, with Alex and, and particularly, well, particularly Alex, but Matt as well, you know, hanging around with us and you see, we were all a bit older, so we were kind of you know getting up to all kinds of scrapes and stuff as you do. And I said, with them being a bit younger, I think they were just a bit like, oh, this is kind of cool. And mm. and yeah, in terms of learning the guitar, obviously, you know. I'm sure I'm sure Alex picked stuff up off me you know I think I think sort of the Curtis Mayfield thing I think we kind of got him quite into that and and you know there's there's sort of hints of that kind of slightly funky thing you know, with fake tales of San Francisco that kind of thing I think some of that kind of stuff maybe he picked up from that and and you know it kind of influenced him a bit and particularly obviously with his relationship with John and the lyrical thing 
you know, was was a, was a huge influence. Again, with John, with us being a bit older and John being that bit older, it was you know, it was quite a big thing for a, for a kid that age to sort of have that to feed off. So, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there was a lot of those early things did did feed into what he was sort of everything he was taking in. I so say he was like he was like a sponge. You could see it. he was mm. just taking it all in, you know, and and then accelerated quickly past all of us. <laughs> <laughs> So. And I'll, uh, yeah, and I guess I'll, I'll come on to that in a second. But I guess I'm interested, you know, back in the day, I remember when they broke in kind of 2005 and even all the way up to 2007 when I left Sheffield. I mean, all the Sheffield musicians did did hang out. I mean, John lived with with Alex. There were kind of various members of your band who lived, you know, all kind of within a fairly short distance of each other. So, I mean, are you still in touch with the Monkeys, Bromhead's Jacket, all those kind of bands from Milburn? Are you all still in touch i know you live at different corners of the world but how does yeah. that work and you have a whatsapp group like how <laughs> yeah, you know how does that, that work yeah that would be a pretty good whatsapp group wouldn't it um yeah i mean obviously I, i'm still in touch with matt a bit um obviously he's in la so it's you know i've not seen him for, for a long time and 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 you know cookie was always sort of kept himself to himself i, I see mally every now and then and and i speak to andy every now and then and obviously the melbourne lads i'm i'm, I'm in touch with them pretty close to also with joe and everyone and, and lewis uh, particularly um bromheads uh i've not seen them for a while uh tim's wife nikki cuts my hair so I'm, i keep up to up to date with them uh, <laughs> through her and uh, yeah it's uh it's funny, really. Like I say, everyone's kind of dispersed a little bit, haven't they? But there's, uh, yeah, there's, there's definitely um, a bit of a kind of a core thing that's that still, still feels very kind of Sheffield, and, and you know, it's one of those. Whenever you do get in a room with these people, you're straight, you know, straight into talking about stuff, and there's, there's no like, you know, they're just, they're just like your mates, aren't they? So it's, it's, it's a strange one to say that, like, you know, Alex and Matt have, have been all around the world and done what they've done, and yeah, you get in a room with them, and it's just like it, like it was 15 years ago. You know, nothing's nothing's really changed. And on the flip side, I remember listening to a podcast recently where I think it was it was someone from Little Man Tate or someone like that saying, you know, you were, you were rivals with bands, or there was definitely rivalries going on between bands like Reverend and Little Man Tate. But now everyone's a bit older, everyone's a little bit wiser. And, uh, you know, bygones are kind of bygones in that sense, because some of you, a lot of you are still around Sheffield, you know? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, there, there, there were, I mean, even with like us and the Monkeys in Melbourne, who were obviously really close, you know, there was always that sort of slightly rivalistic element to it, you know, which I think in a way is what made that scene at the time what it was, you know, everybody was sort of pushing each other and like, you'd hear one of the, 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 the new Monkeys tunes and you'd be like, oh, that's, that's amazing, that's really cool. And so you'd be like, right, I want to try and, you know, I want to try and write something as good as that or better. And, and it just sort of, yeah, that, everyone kind of pushed each other on. And yeah, there, there, there was, I mean, obviously there was there was slightly more rivalry, should we say. Obviously, the, the, I think the Little Man Tate lads, there was always a bit of a, a bit of a friction for some reason. I, I never quite understood why, but... I think, I think there was for whatever reason but yeah you know you, you get older and you get past it don't you and it's all, mm. you're, all you're all at the end of the day trying to do the same thing and what well, yeah you, you suddenly see that kind of perspective on it and you think well do you know what it's, it's all good isn't it it's, it doesn't really matter it was all good fun we all had a laugh and mm. kind of had did what they did and, and we all enjoyed it so yeah it was almost as if there was a journalist from NME going between the bands telling the other band what they'd said about them, isn't it? I mean... <laughs> yeah, well, that's journalism for you. There you go. <laughs> well, that's that's my style of journalism for you, at least back in the day. Um, I think to return to the timeline, you know, after Jude and Suki came 1984, this is the first time I, uh, I'd have seen you play live with that band. And, you know, 
more of a punkish, I guess, quite political yeah. band. Obviously, a smaller lineup um, as well. And again, this is the first time I'd seen John as a frontman. I remember, I remember writing a review of maybe not a nineteen eighty four gig, but it was something to do with Sheffield and saying, "Go and see nineteen eighty four. They've got this mad singer who just <laughs> he eyeballs people in the crowd. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Flattened, you know, so." Yeah. You know, I guess for those who haven't heard 1984, like how would you describe that? How do you look back on your time in, in that band? Well, I think, yeah, 1984, like you say, it was a lot more punky. It was a lot more aggressive and, and yeah, certainly political. Um, it, it was obviously John finding his feet in terms of in, in lyrically in that respect. But I think, yeah, I think we were just, it, it was that kind of band where you'd be in and you were doing stuff to, almost to try and get noticed, do you know what I mean? Just to, you'd be in that little bit more aggressive, like John would be like eyeballing you and I'd be going mental, swinging my guitar around and doing all the rest mm -hmm. of it. And you're used to that age where you just want to like grab people. And and I mean, there were some, there were a couple of interesting moments musically, I think. It wasn't, uh, again, it wasn't amazing, but it, it, it had a it had a vibe, it had a thing definitely. And, and it was, yeah, like you say, it was the first time that people like yourself and, you know, started to sort of watch us and, and you know, take notice and you know we had people like um uh sean moore the designer who came and ended up designing the state of things artwork and everything he he suddenly somehow picked up some of the demos and was a huge fan and just came along to the gigs with a load of badges and you know we, we formed a friendship over that and it was it was that kind of slightly next level up thing that i think we found with with 1984 and yeah it, it definitely led on then to a bit more to the sort of the reverend thing and and yeah, taking taking it from there. Yeah, because I, I remember I was kind of readying doing an interview or something for 1984 for NME, and then it was John telling me, "Well, yeah, I've split them up, and I'm going, <laughs> I'm going solo." And I think I've I've come to understand it was Jeff Barradale who managed the Arctic's at the time. I think maybe still does. I've I've not followed his management career since yeah, my time in Sheffield. I'm not sure he is anymore, but yeah, I'm sure. He, but at the time, he kind of had he was putting his chips on John McClure and Alex Turner and seeing which one, mm. which one came up, uh, which one came up red. But um, you know, he I guess he the word is he kind of advised John to, to go solo, which he did. But he mm. took his best mate you with him again. So you know, mm. it's the third band that you were you're in him. So I guess does that make you? The word John described himself as on the pod, on the interview we did him is like a despot. He wanted to kind of be a dictator and a despot. But does that mean you're kind of like his military chief, his kind of right hand man? And oh god, you know, what what do you think back on those times in terms of transitioning from 1984 to then to then Reverend? I don't know really. It's, it's a, yeah, you kind of yeah, you're making me out to be sort of like Goering or Goebbels or something. Just <laughs> not something I'm necessarily comfortable being. Uh, no, I mean, it, I mean the Reverend thing. Yeah, it was kind of John. John sort of took his ideas, I think, and and obviously me as as his, his sort of closest guy at the time, uh, and obviously kind of the music guy. You know, John couldn't at this point couldn't even play guitar. You know, he he, he didn't do anything musically, so. Yeah, obviously he needed he needed me still to help him with that. So I was, you know, obviously came along and and but it was I mean that that first sort of reverend thing was, was very much a, a collective thing. I think we've we've sort of spoken about this sort of collective thing in the, in the past. You know, there were obviously lots of different people who contributed to that record. Obviously Alex did and 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 Tim from Bromwich Jacket and Tom Rowley Milburn. You know. There were lots of people who had Mike Hughes singing on it, and and yeah, so there was there was lots of lots of stuff, and obviously Alan Smythe's input as well. You know, it, it was a real sort of collaboration. So 
Yeah, I don't know really. It was it was it was an interesting sort of move, but then obviously we needed the band to play live. So yeah, again, the, it, it was just a natural thing that that uh, yeah, it was it was sort of me and John, and and we sort of recruited the other people from there really to to, to play live essentially. And I want to go into a little bit more of the, you know, the success and the highs and the lows of being in Reverend the Makers for the last kind of 15 years. But I kind of want to take a bit of a detour and think just a little bit more about kind of your relationship with with John. You know, I think it's a really interesting dynamic that you've been with him in all of these bands. And also, I was sort of thinking about this in the context of music more broadly. You know, you mentioned Cookie in, in The Monkeys and Alex, you know, and I think... I mean, no one even knows what Jamie Cook sounds like in terms of his voice. He's never never does an interview. I once wrote a review for Enemy where I said, who the hell is Jamie Cook? Who is he? I mean, we know he influences a lot of the music. It doesn't work if you have, if you had a John McClure, two John McClaws in your oh, band, yeah, yeah. It, it wouldn't work. So I guess, you know, how, how, do you, how do you think that's kind of worked over the years? And, you know, do you think it's important that you were happy to be in the kind of the background while he was very yeah. much kind of the focal point definitely i mean yeah it it wouldn't have worked and you know we wouldn't have got to to sort of today had it not been like that i don't think i mean and, and that was it wasn't just me it was, it was sort of everybody in the band really in, the, in those sort of early days you know when we, when we recorded the first album the lineup at the time you know it was great we had some amazing gigs and it, it you know we, we created some real magic at, at times but there were there were a lot of sort of egos in the band at that time and you know obviously egos clash and ultimately things had to had to move on from that to sort of progress the band so i think if i if i'd have like you said if i'd been another sort of john character the same you know there's no way we'd have we'd have kind of carried on as long as we did you know um so yeah it was important we, that i was kind of yeah like you said a bit a bit of a sort of um the guy behind the scenes sort of pushing it forward almost john was the driving force but without the sort of the rear wheels you, you don't get anywhere do you know what i mean so it's it was that kind of that kind of vibe and and you know we we always used to we had we had this thing called customers and cashiers that we used to we used to sort of talk about we used to try and analyze everybody all the all the kind of relationships even you, know, you can look at like lennon and mccartney and stuff and like the customers are always buzzing around being sort of crazy and this 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 i want that now 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 and all this and and all of a sudden they get to that the, the checkout and but they can't get out the shop without the cashier mm. doing mm. their you know checking them out and <laughs> doing all that but you've always got yeah, yeah. it's two sides if you've got two customers you just you're just fighting and you never get out and you just, just explode you've got two cashiers it's all a bit sort of dull and boring and you're just like it's a bit sort of plain sailing so you, you kind of like, like to have this kind of yin and yang i suppose so yeah that, that's kind of i think why why it works but i think that's the same like you say with the monkeys i mean you've got alex who's developed into this sort of really sort of driving force this big sort of frontman presence and then you, yeah, you've got people like matt and, and cookie who are just kind of yeah contribute so much but don't say anything you know so it's you, you can't really have a band without that and then- totally yeah and i think i kind of want to think about it on kind of a, mu- a kind of a personal level as well as kind of musical sort of level and you know you've spent a lot of t- a lot more time around john than me because he's, he's your best mate but it's fair to say over the 15 years he's had he's been through the mill quite a lot you know he's had like i say some great highs and successes and you know at the same time he gets himself into spats on social media that we all advise him not to and yeah. um you know spats with the enemy so i've always wondered you know kind of in the background as his as his right hand man you know as his best mate what was that like from your point of view where that's totally the opposite you're you're totally the opposite to that in terms of your public mm-hmm. persona you know you 
you don't engage in that sort of stuff but you can't yeah. tell him not to but i would just want yeah i just wondered on a kind of a personal level what from your perspective how how that felt kind of seeing that play out well i think it's a bit like it's very much a double-edged sword isn't it i mean obviously it, it creates a certain amount of publicity you know and, and the old adage that any publicity is good publicity isn't it you know and, and particularly with the way the music industry sort of changed fairly rapidly from those sort of the first album or I mean even by the time we made the second Reverend album um, things had changed quite a lot with the music business so to suddenly then not have those kind of support mechanisms of that all the TV stuff we used to do and kind of the radio had changed the charts certainly changed and you don't get that kind of support to that it becomes a way of, of, of kind of keeping yourself not, I don't say relevant, but do you know what I mean? It, it keeps you sort of ticking over. It keeps lots of interesting things happening. And, you know, it, it started off where it was it was all good. And then obviously, yeah, the, the, you know, with the, there'd be times where you'd be looking at Twitter and scrolling through and seeing these arguments develop. And, you know, you, from my point of view, it's, it's difficult. And I think, I think obviously, again, Laura's, you know, his, his wife, I think, found it difficult at times seeing him sort of almost self-implode in that way that, you know, but the, the, there's nothing you could kind of do about it. it. It's, I think it's just who he is. You know, it's it's his nature that that you know he, he goes through these things. But it's all it all comes from kind of yeah a good place, and you know it, it inevitably it, it creates stories. And and I think sort of with with it, it's helped us, but also you know it's obviously hindered us as well. So it's it's a real kind of yeah, it's a really difficult thing to sort of to sort of look on and make any real sense other than mm, we're, mm. we're still doing it and you know we've we've had the career we have so it's it's obviously it's, it's all part of the story I don't, I don't think it could have been any other way really and I think on kind of a related note as well you know John's quite political I don't get the sense that you're apolitical by any, by any means and I've heard interviews where you know you talked about kind of when the band were aligned with Jeremy Corbyn and stuff like that but you know it's interesting we had an interview with Tom Clark from The Enemy uh, on this show a couple of years ago and he was talking about how he got pigeonholed as this political artist and you know he did have an opinion but it was something the record label had kind of cooked up in a way or turned the volume upon and his bandmates hated it I mean the other guys in The Enemy like we just want to play fast rock and roll songs um and throw beer around we don't we don't want to be talking about fidel castro and you know british educational policy and stuff like that and i wondered i, I guess I, I wanted to ask you kind of the same question you know when john was getting very political was that something you were happy with because it generated the headlines or would you rather have just focused more on the musical side yeah well i mean yeah i mean in terms of me being political obviously it, at that point john was political enough for everybody you know so that there was mm. there was certainly no need for certainly myself to to sort of delve into all that as well but I think yeah I don't know it's a, it's a tricky one really it's um like I said it, it's very much a double-edged thing it's it, it obviously everything you know particularly the second Reverend album French Kiss and the Chaos was incredibly political and and there's stuff on there that even today rings incredibly painfully true you know so and that was that was where are we? That was twelve years ago. Mm. You know, it's the, the themes and the things that that you know they were talking about lyrically on that are, are still so relevant today. And 
it's important that it was said, and I think over time it'll stand the test of time and people will look back on it and think, you know, that's a great record. You know, it might take another 10, 15, 20 years for people to really appreciate it. But I think it was important to say, and as much as it might have caused problems and, you know, it's it kind of almost set set the band up for a, a, a certainly a number of years after that, like I said, with all the kind of the fallings out and, and, and John sort of, proclaiming he'd left the music industry and falling out like you say with enemy and stuff and it kind of set us up for a slightly rocky road after that but i think it was you know things like that needed to be said and and you know i'm i'm proud that that album was made and that it was it, it said what it said and you know it's I, I think it's actually our best the best record that we made you know musically as well i think it was it was incredible um so you know i, I can only stand by it and you know on a personal level there were important things that were being said you know it, it might have caused problems but you know sometimes you've, you've kind of got to do it you know and there was definitely no difficult second album syndrome on that because i seem to remember john playing me demos from that before i think you'd even put out the first record or not long after like mm. it seemed like the sense i got from the outside was that was actually the album you and john and laura I probably always wanted that was the album you wanted to make kind of you, you did your first album with the the stuff that was the demos from when you first started touring but in reality that was the album you seem to be building up to and you're right i think it is the best reverend record yeah i mean yeah obviously i say the the, the first album was a, it was a very different kind of process to making it and then the second one you know was was a lot of sort of i mean yeah it was a lot of kind of john's ideas particularly the lyrical thing and, and you know by this point I say he'd he, he kind of learned well I'd, I'd taught him to play a few chords on guitar so mm. he kind of started to sort of properly just sit and write songs and yeah like you say touring around with, when we touring the state of things and stuff we'd be sat on the bus and the tour bus and playing these some of these songs in their early early kind of forms and just jamming them out constantly you know so that's all we did for about two years around that making the second album we just we just jammed everything constantly and there's I've got I've got like hard disks full of so many different versions of all those songs you know going going through and, and working them out and stuff so yeah it was, it was it was a really kind of yeah a really really sort of cool positive kind of record to make even though it was mm. it was quite sort of doomy in some of its subject matter <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah and i mean it, it was it was a it wasn't an easy record to make either to, to, to say that you know with the, they were obviously talking about the kind of the frictions and stuff within the band at the time you know it wasn't there were, there were moments where it wasn't particularly easy and, and obviously after that after we'd finished kind of touring that album the lineup changed and, and things moved on but you know it was it was still yeah really really kind of important record to make i think because yeah there did seem to be a bit of a revolving lineup at the time i remember every time i'd i'd come and see you live or come down to the studio john would be going this is our new guitarist or yeah this is our this is our new drummer and yeah. you can kind of draw a line between most people who were you know joe moscow on keyboards had been in a band with jeff and i think mm -hmm. stews the drummer was in a band with jeff yeah, Dave yeah. sanderson so you know who end, ended up kind of producing your stuff so mm. yeah it, it did seem like a bit of a revolving door until you kind of solidified the lineup kind of in the last sort of five six years would be my by my maths yeah so yeah it was it was yeah when we did the third so we came up with the third album after a bit of a hiatus i think for everyone to just kind of gather their thoughts and just figure out what was going on and yeah it's uh, it took it took a while to get to that point but then obviously when we wanted to play that live yeah it was clear that we needed to do something slightly differently and approach it differently and and we got in yeah we got in joe um obviously from melbourne who was, was doing his kind of book club thing at the time 
Um, got him in and, and Ryan Jenkinson on drums, who's who's just brilliant, you know, absolutely amazing drummer and just a great guy to have around, really sort of down to earth and just a laugh, you know. And then it suddenly became this kind of basically it was a, it was a band of John the cashier and a group of uh, John the customer, sorry, and a, a group of cashiers behind <laughs> them. Essentially, came everyone was kind of like just all moving as one, which which is why that that's sort of endured since really as a, as a certainly as a live thing. Um, yeah, so I think I think it, yeah that that kind of move had to be made to to allow it to have the longevity that it did. Mm, mm. Another relationship I kind of wanted to ask you about that we've sort of touched on a little bit is, you know, uh, John John and Laura. I guess you know they um, they obviously met through being in the band. They worked together at the start of the band, and that's their story to tell. But I've always again been interested what it's like being in a band. With a married couple, particularly when one of them is the front man and the other one's your tour manager, which is what Laura is now. And you know, I don't think I've ever met a nicer person in all the time I've been in music than a more a nicer or more patient, probably is the word I'd use mm-hmm. for, for for Laura. But what I've always wondered being in the band, what is it like when you know you said Rev Enders? I mean, it's the ultimate mm-hmm. soap opera situation, isn't it? Where you've got a husband and wife and your best mate in in a band. So, you know, what was what has that been like for you being kind of between between them quite literally on stage stood between them often yeah yeah well yeah so yeah it's definitely felt like sort of in those early days sort of definitely between them a bit you know because obviously they weren't together when it all started um so there was that whole process of them sort of uh you know becoming a thing together and then yeah getting married and then i think i think once once they'd kind of officially got together and and and, ultimately got married which was around the second album time i think um after that point it was all fairly fairly plain sailing really um and like you said yeah laura you know incredibly patient and and just yeah just just took care of took care of all all that kind of the business really on, on that side of it and i think without that again i think things would have been very different without that kind of solidity you know um i think with john freely admit with his sort of you know his, his personality and character to have that kind of uh, the solidity thing is 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 crucial, really. Um, otherwise, yeah, say things things might have been very different. So we've kind of talked about some of the soap opera stuff. So we can put that behind us for now and kind of talk about some of the the high points, I guess, of being in the band. And we could fill a whole podcast series, I think, with you mm. know, kind of the career you've had in the album. So I just wanted to pick out some kind of compotted moments, particularly ones that I, I guess I was around for as well. You know, the yep. selling out the plug while unsigned without a record out a thousand tickets i mean you know and at the time i remember pitching this to my you know my editors at enemy to say you do realize this is a band that haven't got a record deal and they've sold out a thousand tickets because it's sheffield it's not london this was london you'd be putting them on the cover but because it's sheffield you know that 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 was a whole other another issue at the time wasn't it that i think i think we all felt a bit sort of yeah it was it was very kind of yeah london based and we were always a little bit on the outside so yeah that, that was an interesting argument so what was your memories from from playing that gig i mean i imagine all of your collective families friends must have all kind of been there obviously along with hundreds of music fans from sheffield as well mm. but mm. it's almost like a victory lap before you've before you've even yeah. started isn't it yeah it, it, it was a i mean i mean at the time we just thought hey you know we've, we've sold all the tickets this is amazing and you know, uh, but looking back, yeah, it's crazy to think that yeah, we literally, you know, we had we had a handful of, you know, well, pretty decent demos, but not certainly not the finished articles by any stretch. 
you know, that had been put online and, and you know, all of a sudden a thousand people had bought a ticket to come and see you. That, you know, looking back, it's bonkers, really. Um, but I mean, to be honest, my overriding memory of that gig is uh, breaking my ankle at the end of it. All right. Yeah, they do say break a leg. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I made the fatal error of, of standing on the drum, drum riser trying to show off and stepping back and landing on something that wasn't particularly uh, level and my ankle just snapped over. Uh, which was, I think, to what I think was the second to last song it happened. So I, I finished the gig, sat on the drum riser and played the last song and then got carried off stage and <laughs> straight off to hospital. Um, yeah, so that, that's my overriding memory of that gig. Um, but yeah, just just um, just bonkers, really, to look back and think that yeah, before a record or anything, that we 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 sold that amount of tickets, and yeah, that's it, it's never kind of looked back since, really, which is a, a strange thing. I think it was the power of kind of a very early social media and kind of yeah. forum culture at the time. I just remember your songs getting swapped on those forums. You, you yeah. got a, a reputation, I think, before. I think I think you had been in the enemy by that point. I think I, I did one of your very early gigs, but beyond a few small reviews, mm. you hadn't really had national press. It took off as a result of the fans more than anything else. Yeah, again, well, yeah, it's going back to that. It sort of began with that 1984 thing we were talking about, you know, and and, and Sean come in and, and just it was just somehow you know he was on these forums or whatever and, and heard a couple of 1984 tracks and loved them and came to the gig and it was that kind of culture. Yeah, the, the, it, was, it was sort of the, the MySpace thing and. And all that, but yeah, these these forums just seem to spring up for all these bands. You know, there was obviously the Monkeys forum, there was a Melbourne forum, there was a Bromes, there was Long Blondes. You know, there was everybody had these forums, and and yeah, just so many people going on, and yeah, you you kind of go on them every now and then and sort of scroll through and have a look and see what they were talking about. And it was just bonkers that all these people were just you know discussing everything about the band and the songs and you know where the gigs were and what happened and. Yeah, it was crazy. So yeah, it was it was it, it, yeah it was it was an early early sort of social media thing that before I mean this was literally before Twitter even existed and all that kind of stuff. So it was yeah it was it was definitely sort of the very beginnings of of that kind of culture really. Because you get mad stuff like appreciation threads for yeah. for band members, right? You yeah. go on. I imagine you I mean, going was, on and seeing forty three pages. You know, I was always a bit missed that I don't. I, I think I was one of the last ones to have an appreciation society. <laughs> Yeah, it's always annoying me that. And obviously, from there, you know, you signed to Wall of Sound, um, and, mm. and again, a bit of a, an instant success. Top ten with your debut, you know, your proper debut single, "Heavyweight Champion." Um, after, I guess, from you, from your point of view, building for a number of years with other bands, but then with Reverend the Makers, straight into the into the top ten, and it stuck around as well. I remember all summer, that song just didn't go away. You know. Yeah. Well, I think yeah, it was. It was yeah. I mean. The week, the week it came out, I think, um, I remember the management ringing us and we were just about to go off and do a gig, I think, somewhere. And they said, oh, yeah, it's uh, midweek, it's number 12 in the charts. And we were just like, Poof, you know, mind blown. It was like, wow, that's, that's actually happening. And then, like you say, yeah, they, it wasn't until about, I think, five or even six weeks after that, that it then climbed into the, into the top 10. And I remember we were, again, we were on route somewhere on, on, on a van and John doing an interview. I think it was Zane Lowe. You know about oh your, your singles just gone top ten and we were just like eh, all cheering in the background and all the rest of it. It's just yeah, strange. And then yeah, just like the album, the album came out and did did really well and yeah, just yeah, just really took off. And the album went gold. Yeah, the album went eventually went top five, mm. went gold and and yeah, I, I guess was was there like a moment 
then you thought this this is probably the maddest moment or a moment where you thought no we've actually we've actually made it now mm-hmm. you know can you actually see it in your mind like where you were or or what that mad moment was well yeah i mean we did um we did a gig in that year i think it was so the year the album came out so it's been to christmas 2007 at christmas um we did it for a couple of years actually in a row we, we played at fabric nightclub we did a, a, a gig there on on like the 23rd of december or something mm. and it, the album had just gone gold and i remember we were playing this playing this gig and it was it was the first kind of london gig where um there was a real kind of vibe in the crowd because i mean we'd, we'd obviously done gigs in london and bigger gigs than that actually at that by that point but there was this gig there was just some kind of atmosphere i mean heavyweight was still kind of sort of knocking around a bit and the album had just gone gold and 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 mark jones the record label boss the wall of sound came out halfway through the gig with this gold record and, and presented it to us and the crowd were just got mental <laughs> and then i think we played heavyweight after that and it was just this euphoric kind of moment that was yeah it was insane really it's definitely even now still one of the kind of the, the, the sort of memories that really sticks out um of, around that time so yeah it was um i think something like that and then from there you know we went on and did some some even bigger stuff but you know that that was that was a real moment that yeah, because I was going to ask you about that. I mean, supporting Oasis being kind of an obvious one that that, yeah. that jumps out to me. I think it was their last their last tour as yeah. well. Um, yeah. What what your kind of memories? Probably at the time you maybe didn't. I mean, I think we could all see Noel and Liam were falling apart at the scenes, but they had been for most of their career. So you thought, mm. well, they'll probably just limp on. So you probably didn't necessarily know it was the final tour. But what? How do you reflect on that now? Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, uh, at the time, definitely. Yeah, I don't, I don't think anybody anybody had said or was saying, "Oh, this is the last tour." It, it definitely wasn't being said. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't think I can't remember a time ever seeing them together other than on stage. Mm-hmm. And you know, the, I think I've, I've spoken in, in other interviews about sort of there were three nights at, at Wembley Stadium on this tour. Um, where after the gigs you know there'd be the parties and whatnot and and it, but it would be individual there'd be Noel's party on one night and then Liam would have a party the next night and you'd kind of be like well I've got to go to that one tonight or this one or you couldn't kind of mix and match it was a bit like that so yeah just just yeah great I mean first firstly obviously supporting Oasis you know as, as a boyhood Oasis fan and one of the reasons I, I got into music and, and, and wanted to be in a band you know so to, to be supporting them was was incredible and, and playing the venues you know that we were playing with them all those kind of stadiums and stuff was was amazing and also actually those gigs i mean there was also there was the enemy and there was kasabian as well who just had i think west pauper uh, lunatic asylum had just come out so fire mm-hmm. in the charts and they were unbelievable and the crowd were obviously feeding off that so them those gigs the whole tour as a whole was just you know, you look back and think there's there's just not there's there's nothing really like it anymore. Those kind of tours they don't really exist anymore because I don't know if the bands aren't there or the kind of collective of the bands isn't the same. I don't know, but mm-hmm. just, I mean they were just incredible gigs, you know. And in terms of you know playing those dates, playing the music, but also then I guess afterwards, you know, hanging out with Noel, hanging out with Liam. Did you spend more time with one than the other? And you know what what were they like? I mean, I know. I'm pretty sure Noel's a fan of Reverend the Makers. I know he's a fan, you know, he's sort of, it's well known. John's sort of known him quite a, you know, quite a while now, but I guess I'm, more, I'm probably more interested in the Liam side. 
Liam's always the one that, that intrigues me the most. Yeah, yeah. Of, you know? I mean, yeah, you're right. No, I mean, yeah, Noel, Noel, I think was was definitely a, a fan, and obviously we 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 supported Noel subsequently to that with his high flying birds thing on on a number of, we toured with him and did a few other gigs. So yeah, there, there's definitely a. I mean, personally, I always I, I hung out with Noel a lot more, spoke to Noel a lot more. I, I didn't really have a lot to do with Liam, if I'm honest, on a personal level. But that that was yeah, because he is a much different character to Noel. Noel has got that kind of slightly more approachable mm. vibe, and and will stand and sort of chat to you on a kind of a level. Whereas Liam has kind of always got this kind of slightly front manny thing. I think where it's always a little bit, he's a little bit kind of you know looking to see sort of. You know how you are, how you're reacting, what you're going to say to him, and and all this. So I think, but I think it's it, maybe now it's slightly different from everything I read about Noel uh, Liam. Sorry, now it's it, he seems to come across quite differently. Mm. Days and matured, seems, matured yeah, maybe yeah, a little bit. Yeah. yeah, whereas obviously back then I think, and particularly I, I, I'm guessing, I'm just I'm just guessing at this point, but I guess with what was going on at the time and how it how it was between him and Noel, I think he you know he was bound to sort of have this kind of barrier up that was a bit kind of defensive and, and not you know not letting you into on a on a kind of a more personal level so that that that's that's all I could really say about it that's, that's all I really saw I said it was, it was definitely more sort of Noel's side that that we kind of we hung out on on a level but yeah strange strange yeah, I'm interested to talk a little bit more about some of your albums as well. Um, you know, I almost think you can put kind of the Reverend career into kind of three phases. So the first couple, then 32 and at, and at Reverend, yeah. at Reverend underscore maker, something. Yeah, yeah, but then yeah. also Mirrors and, and Death of a King. And I think that's where you've really kind of come into your own musically and, and also changed up the way you made albums. You know, you were no longer in Two Fly. No, Two Fly is a great place, right? But it mm. is. Yeah, it's yeah. an old, you know, it's an old industrial unit in by the Sheffield United football stadium, right? right yeah, it's yeah. not, it's not Jamaica, it's not Thailand. That's no, that's going to yeah. influence kind of the way that you record music. So I guess thinking about those kind of more latter day Reverend albums, what was it that made you decide you well we need to get out the UK? Is it just you know free holiday at the label's expense? Although it <laughs> never quite works like that because you're paying for it out of your well, account. So. It, yeah, there's the yeah. Yeah, you're all you always pay for everything ultimately at some point. So yeah, it was. I mean, I mean, there, there, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was there was some angle of it saying, "Oh, that'd be great." You know, we we could go and 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 we wouldn't technically at the time have to pay for it. But I think um, I mean, Mirrors the the fifth album, Mirrors was we recorded the bulk of it in Sheffield at Two Fly actually. Um, it was kind of the, the 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 last time we sort of did anything with uh, Two Fly. Um, so we we'd recorded the the kind of the majority of it here with Dave and and Alan, um, Dave Sanderson and Alan Smythe. And then it was we were just I think it, we we got to that point where again it was coming back to that whole thing where there was there's just no sort of media support. There's no radio. There's no mainstream sort of publicity for the actual music and the product. So you get into that thing of, th of thinking about how can you sort of do something that's a bit different or make it stand out in some way. And, and we got this opportunity through our, I think it was, I think it was through our management um, to go to the studio in Jamaica, amazing place called G-Jam Studios that's had all sorts of people like Rihanna's recorded there and all sorts. It's, it's a bit of a, a bit of a crazy place, just right up in the sort of the mountains, just looking up sort of above Kingston. And um, we got this opportunity to say we can, we, we can get it like dirt cheap. It's kind of off season. 
do you want to go and essentially finish the album and, and mix it there? And we were just like, well, obviously, yeah. Clearly. <laughs> uh, so we did that. And then, yeah, the thinking was, well, that's a, that's a bit of a story in itself, but let's go and, and make the most of it. So we took um, Roger Sargent, who uh, was obviously a photographer for the enemy and, and has gone on to do some great things, um, particularly with Libertines and stuff. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's an official photographer, isn't he? Pretty yeah, much. exactly. Yeah. yeah, he came out with us and 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 we made this kind of film to go along with with the the, the album, the Mirrors album. Um, so it just it was just a, a way of I guess kind of adding something to the story to talk about in a way to come back to England and go with, well we've been to Jamaica and made this mad record and. Um, made this crazy, um, crazy film to go with it, you know, running through the jungle and, and you know, playing sort of gangsters with guns and <laughs> this kind of stuff. And yeah, so it, you get, yeah, you just get to the point where you need to do something that you can, you can sell, sell it on really, because there's, there's no other support, there's nobody going to sell it for you. So you just got to do it yourself. So that, that was the thinking behind it, really. And, and it kind of went on from there. And then, yeah, the Thailand thing came about again, another, another sort of connection that we, we, we got this studio, got a good deal on it. And, and, you know, we were like, where can, what can we do next? What can, what can top Jamaica? And we're like, well, let's go and actually make the thing in Thailand. And so we went out there and recorded it. And, and that, I mean, that, that, <laughs> that was crazy in itself. It was, it, we were there at the time that the, um, the King died, hence, hence the name of the album ended up being called yeah, yeah. King. And, that was just a, a, a again one of these uh, going back to the you know the, the beginning of the, the, the sort of the story of the Judan Suki thing and this kind of weird series of sort of fatalistic events that put you in certain places at certain times and that seemed to have followed me all, all through all this stuff and to be yeah, to be there when this when the king died who'd been on the throne for like something like 65 70 years like longer than our queen's been on the throne here I think he was the longest mm. monarch mm. in the world at the time and he was, you know, he, he was like a god to the people. He was revered, and and this the whole country just, you know, went into total shutdown over this thing. We were just there trying to record this album. Like, what's going on here? Like, one minute you could go out to the little bar down the seafront and have a few beers and some food, and the next day everything was shut. And it was just like, this is just crazy, you know. And everyone's in tears, and you're trying to make sense of it all and read up about the king and figure out what's going on. And, yeah, so it's yeah, just but again, it's all stuff to talk about, you know. It's it's all kind of adds to the whole the whole story, and and that's that's kind of why we did it, and and why I think it's important to to try and go out your comfort zone and do these things to so you know you, there is something to talk about. But a real evolution in your sound though by that point. I mean, so yeah. different to anything you'd done earlier on in your career, and I guess you know. One of the things I know John's been quite passionate about in interviews is saying everyone thinks that with that lad rock band that did Heavyweight yeah. Champion, yeah. listen to our best of. The best of, in a way, doesn't work as a best of. I was listening to it before as a bit of like a bit of a primer for tonight. So I didn't have the whole I have time for the whole discography. And I'm like, mm. this doesn't work as a best of because this is frankly about five different bands. Probably yeah. it is five different bands. You think about the kind of some of the lineup changes. But I guess when you come to make a new album, what who who decide who decides right we're going to do thai psychedelia this time and we're going to go to thailand or this time we're going to do some banging electro we're going to do stuff like baseline or we're mm. going to make a political pop record in terms of french kiss and the chaos so like how does that dynamic between the cashier and the customer cashier and the customers mm. the band kind of work like how, how do you do that well i mean to be honest it's it's all it's all kind of happened in a way it's all just sort of it's been a very natural process, the whole thing, really. Apart from, I mean, maybe there was one occasion when it, it wasn't. I mean, the, the 
the third album at Reverend underscore Makers came about because John, we'd, we'd had this sort of hiatus and John had gone off to do his, I think it was called the sound, the Reverend Sound System thing. With, yeah, I was the first DJ to ever play at a Reverend Sound System. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, so, I mean, no one was in the venue at the time and it was a, <laughs> it was a iPod playlist. So That's it was probably debatable whether it was even DJing, but I'm having that on my gravestone. That I was, I was the first one on at the first show. Have it, have it, yeah, definitely. So yeah, so there was that, and and that that's where Jimmy Welsh, the the producer who produced the third and the fourth album, that's where he sort of came in. And so John was doing that, but then the, the, there became this feeling that we you know we we could make another record as as Reverend and the Makers, and then it, so it came out of the ashes of of that. So that was a very sort of natural pro, pro um, progress from that. And then the only I think the only the only time we've ever not sort of it's not felt natural it was maybe the fourth record 32 which was kind of a rehash of the third album so in our minds it, it's not we don't we, we don't really have much of a sort of a connection with the record we don't feel it really did anything sort of of merit but i think i mean i think that fan wise i think there's 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 a few songs on there that a lot of people love love quite a lot but you know so but then obviously after that we 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 knew we wanted sorry to... is 32 got shine on it shine a light no that's that's, that's the one before that's the reverend makers shine okay baseline and out the shadows they're all off because that's probably the yeah. only song i ever can ever think that you did where i thought maybe this was a bit calculated in terms of this will get picked up for maybe the <laughs> national lottery themselves will play this because it's it, 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 it's Maybe it stands that, out to me as a bit of a, a bit of a red herring to what maybe, you guys maybe did. There you was know? something subconscious on that level at that point, because we, we were obviously trying to think, well, what can we what can we do to sort of sort of get noticed? I guess so. Maybe maybe there mm. was some subconscious about that, but um, yeah. So I mean, after that period, that there was a, de- a conscious decision. Well, we need to do something different. We had no idea what it was, and then we just found ourselves in the studio working on some songs not for anything in particular and all of a sudden we just started writing mirrors as it you know literally almost from the start of the album to the finish we just wrote it like that and you know with it all kind of interconnecting and, and all mm-hmm. the and we were like well that's kind of cool we quite like that played it a manager and he was just like we're on about this is the next record this is brilliant and we were like is it oh right okay <laughs> so it just kind of happened and then Death of a King was a similar, we just sort of, it was kind of part two almost. We just carried on that kind of mental sort of mental attitude with it and just just went with it. And and we knew we were going to go to Thailand with the, with that one. So there was a bit of thought about, well, let's try and sort of take some Thai influences when we get there and, and make a bit of a, there's one, obviously one track on that album called Bang Sarai, which is the, named after the little town we were in, little village we were in. Mm. It's got that kind of sort of Chinese Thai sort of flavour. So... So, yeah, but yeah, it was all a very natural process, really. Um, there wasn't, you know, it's, it's strange to sort of say, or, you know, we didn't really think about it that much, but we didn't, you know, it just kind of, mm. we just sort of went with it. And yeah, which I think is ultimately the best thing to do, which is, you know, sort of to try and try and bring it back around sort of now with the solar record. It's, it's you know, it's, it's been a similar sort of process. I'd, in the early days of thinking about doing a solar record, it was, it was, I was thinking too hard about it, thinking, or it needs to be this, or who do I need to do this for? Who wants to hear a certain thing? Or whereas in the end, I just sat and wrote what was kind of what I wanted to do, and and the songs that I loved, and and made the album that actually I just wanted to make. And and I think you know that's that's kind of how it's how it's got to this point, really. Yeah, I was going to kind of bring the interview back round to that. You're right. We spent an hour not talking about the thing that you're here to promote. So you know, <laughs> fortune favors out this week, and um, 
No, I've, I've been living with it for the past week or so, uh, you know, and I think great record. Doesn't sound like a debut, though. This is the thing. This is the key thing for me, that this is the work of a lifetime, really, is what it sounds like yeah. to me. And quite lyrically, quite wistful and reflective. And and I think quite interesting. I almost feel like, and you could correct me on this, that maybe you can ex- you've been able to express yourself better in song than sometimes you've been able to, like I say, in interviews or anything like that, kind of going going down the years so is, is it it's deliberately quite personal right yeah totally absolutely I, it, and I think that again that's that's where I've kind of come almost come full circle around to, to that way of thinking that it's it's not always I've always thought well it needed to be something else when actually it does just need to come from me it needs to be what I want to say and this is why it's taking so long to get here and again going back to the confidence thing again you know being able to express myself in the way that I want to in the way that I'm comfortable in doing uh, and also it being good enough you know that's that's taken time to sort of get my head around so I think once I'd kind of sort of cracked that nut almost it, 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 it that that then allowed me to 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 make the record as, as it is and yeah it's definitely it's it's I think I think yeah you're right it's it's whilst it's my debut solo record it, it's certainly not my first album clearly you know I've, I've, I've done this many times over it's just it's it's a slightly different spin on it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm glad actually that you, you don't think it does sound like a debut record. I was kind of hoping that it would obviously come across as a bit more accomplished and a bit more kind of formed and rounded than than a typical sort of debut you know, record is. So, yeah, it's uh, but it's, yeah, it encompasses, yeah, that kind of reflective looking back on, on everything that's happened in all my life and, you know, all the kind of relationships and being in love and all the rest of it and, you know, finally ending up you know, happily married with a couple of kids and, and in a good place and, you know, the journey that it's it's taken me to get here and, you know, all those things we've talked about, they all kind of come out in, in the songs that I'm writing and, and still I'm writing, you know, now to, to sort of hopefully make another one, you know. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because often, obviously, often being a touring musician doesn't necessarily equate to wife and, and kids and, you know, the, the world of rock and roll is littered with 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 that and even being a music journalist to be honest it doesn't it doesn't really uh, marry up with that either that's why that's why I left that game a few years back but mm-hmm. yeah I, I just think when I said it doesn't sound like a debut I almost think as well it's a different style for you you know it's, it's not but it's not like it's taken you three solo albums to get to a point where I think you sound confident in what you're doing you know and and, and the other thing I think of a mark of a good solo album from someone in a band is I really cannot imagine this as a Reverend the Makers record. I can't imagine John singing yeah. these songs with you on guitar. It's it's very much you. It suits yeah. your voice. It suits mm-hmm. your maybe some of your tastes that John doesn't have. Maybe I wonder if there's things in here you put that that John maybe would respect, but he wouldn't dig it. If you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. I mean, yeah. There, I mean, there's. I'm just trying to think if there's actually anything on on the record. There's certainly songs that were considered for this record that I'd, I I think at some point I've probably pitched. To John over the last sort of yeah three or four years that he's been like yeah it's cool but it's not I don't think it's yeah it's not right or whatever so but obviously for me it is you know a different thing and and yeah certainly yeah saying about you, you couldn't hear John singing these songs then yeah that's definitely definitely true and and I think again coming out of the last couple of Reverend albums with the songs that I did sing it, it was I think the reason I sang them in a way was because of that reason that they were kind of like Old Reek particularly was um the main sort of part of it that that kind of opening thing with the piano that that was very much my kind of concept and idea and my melody and 
yeah, it was, it was never going to be something that John was going to sing, you know, because, you know, it just wouldn't sound right. So, yeah, it, it kind of came from there moving forward. And, and yeah, uh, so, yeah, going back to that, so, uh, you know, again, that stepping stone thing of, of getting to this point and, yeah, the, the songs being my songs and, and, and certainly expressing me and, and my, yeah, like you say, you, my voice is, 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 is obviously quite a, a key thing to the whole to the whole album. And in terms of putting it together musically, you know, I guess in this instance, you're the despot, you're the dictator, you're the one <laughs> yeah. in charge, but you brought Joe from uh, from Reverend and Milburn kind yeah. of along musically. Who else was in, is it just you and him? Was anyone else involved? Like, how did you put it together? Yeah, so, well, I've got a load of songs, literally on acoustic guitar, me, me singing an acoustic, and I'd kind of whittled it down to however many, uh, 15, 16 songs. Um, and we got the studio booked and I knew I knew I wanted Dave to come, Dave Sanderson to come and produce it, who'd obviously done the last couple of couple of records and I've obviously got a, a very good relationship with. So that was that. And then I kind of thought, well, I'm not just going to go and do it myself because I don't want to have to worry about all that kind of stuff on my own, which is yeah. why I brought Dave to produce. I could have I could have gone and produced it myself, but I didn't want to because I find that you know you, you can get so kind of too many hats you know too many balls in the air it's mm. i just be able to go and focus on 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 what i was going to do you know singing and, and 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 what have you so so yeah decided to take ask joe to come with me uh who i do you know was a great musician who i trust and you know is, is is a great guy to have around and also there was adam crofts the drummer who was uh in a band called the crooks um for a while and before that he was in a band called the host so i mean great drummer again a great musician as well you know he's he's, he's much better on piano than i am so it's you know it's a good guy to have around um so we just went and, and sort of yeah went to wales and, and and recorded it and yeah it was it was an interesting process like you're saying it was my turn to be the kind of the, the leader which before we went and that sort of the week before we, we were due to go to the studio I, I did sort of worry about that actually a little bit i did sort of think well you know i'm i'm, I'm sort of used to leading things to a point in the studio you know mm. getting music down and stuff but there's all i always i've always had you know john there taking care of the kind of the the the, the lyrical side of it and driving the final decisions and stuff so I've always it's always been quite a relaxed thing still, even though it was quite intense at times. Mm. So just thinking like, well, I'm I'm going to have to tell these guys, you know, what I want, and I can't just you know expect them to sort of figure it out. So it, it did, yeah, it did it did sort of prime my mind a, a little bit leading up to it. But it's that old thing where you know you get you get into the studio and it's almost like you get back in the saddle, so to speak, and and you suddenly realise, yeah, I've been doing this for fifteen years, I know what to do. I just again I needed I needed the confidence to just be able to know what it was I was trying to do but by this point I did you know I just mm, to mm. sort of push through it and think actually you know this is how I want this song to sound this is the kind of vibe and I was able to you know get that across to the guys and 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 you know I certainly didn't make it on my own but it, it was you know they, they they all contributed a huge amount to, to that finished record but yeah it was uh, it was kind of a, a real kind of yeah, just something something I didn't think I would I would I would ever do in a way, but but happily did and and have, have sort of thrived on it since. Really, it's, it's really sort of opened something up in me. I think which has has been really really nice. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to our listeners hearing it. And I guess by the time this is out, it will be available 
and all good streaming platforms, uh, <laughs> yeah. CD, tape, yeah. you know, wax cylinder. Yeah. Yeah. Are you going to are you going to take it on the road? Like obviously with the COVID stuff yeah. being up in the yeah. air, like is there a plan to to play it live? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's been one of those things where with with the Reverend thing, we had we had so many gigs cancelled last year and it's rescheduled and then cancelled again and. It was just really difficult. So I've, I've, I've kind of, I've always kind of said that I didn't want to just book a load of gigs to just be cancelled because it, it, it's horrible. So yeah, but there's a definite plan. I mean, now hopefully as, as things are at the moment, you know, the way things are going, and obviously everybody's suddenly booked all their gigs again for the end of the summer and the, the autumn. I, I very much hope that yeah, autumn time we'll be able to book some gigs. And get out and play it live. So that's that's kind of what I'm hoping. I've, I've, we're still holding off slightly, just at the minute, just to you know, just to see exactly what what's going to happen. But yeah, definitely. I mean, playing live's kind of kind of almost what what I'm I do music for. It's it's the thing that you know, like I said, from from a very early age and from sort of 13, I've played live. You know, this this last year with the pandemic, not doing gigs in the, for a year is the longest time since literally since I was like 13, mm. not mm. done a gig. You know, I think the longest period before that was probably a couple of months. You know, it's it's a huge, been a huge hole in my life, and I think in a well, a lot of musicians and and other other kind of performers in any any sort of genre. You know, it's it's been a huge hole in on all our lives. So it's yeah, you know, to get back to it as soon as possible, I think is is going to be amazing. So definitely, definitely going to get out there and and do something as as soon as possible, really. I think it'd be interesting to see, you know, musically how it kind of evolves and I guess how it evolves you as well. You know, you've talked about the confidence thing. Maybe you do a tour and by the end of it, you know, you're, you're riding around on a motorbike and, you know, <laughs> doing the typical frontman stuff, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 well, maybe. maybe I'll, I'll probably I'll, I wouldn't say never, but uh, I, I think it's probably unlikely. It's, uh, I, I, yeah, I think by the, by the sort of where I'm at now, if I've not sort of settled into who I am, I don't think uh, I don't think it's going to change too drastically. Um, plus, I don't think I'd be allowed to. I don't think I'd get away with my wife would kill me for a start. She'd, <laughs> she'd be the first one to pull me up on it. So, yeah, that's 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 probably not going to happen. But uh, you know, you never know. You never know. Could be. And I think just just to kind of round things off, you know, obviously you're going off and doing your thing. The last time we spoke to John on this show. He was working on some mad AI music. I wasn't sure if that was for a Reverend album or something he was doing solo, but you know, it's been a few years now since since the last Reverend, Reverend the Makers album, 2017. So kind of what's the road ahead? You know, clearly your road ahead now is the solo album and working mm. on that and touring that, obviously. But what's the more kind of longer term plan for the Reverend, for Reverend the Makers, if there even is a longer term plan well sort of bandy make long-term plans are you yeah i think i mean i think there's there's definitely i think i think john's got a plan certainly um yeah it's it's difficult to sort of know exactly what's going to happen with that but yeah i don't know i mean it's yeah it's, it's certainly for me obviously at the minute it's it's all about the kind of the solo thing and 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 doing that and you know I, I'm, I'm kind of in in the in the sort of the mode where I, I kind of want to try and do another one fairly quickly if I can. I'm, I'm sort of, it's been, it's, it's already been about two, two years, two and a bit years since I even recorded the album. So I'm, I'm kind of itching to do another one. I've already, you know, the, the first lockdown gave me a load of space and time to write a load more songs. So I'm, I'm, that's kind of where my head's at, really. Um, so where, where the rest of it goes, I mean, I'm, there's, there's certainly going to be more reverend stuff, but. Uh, yeah, it's, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm very much sort of focusing on this at the moment. 
Have you heard any of this AI music that you know he's been making with his algorithm mates? An algorithm band, probably an algorithm drummer, an yeah. algorithm guitarist. I, I just I, I can't in my mind picture. But I listened back to the interview in preparation for this, and he was talking about this AI music, and mm. I can't get my head around what it would actually sound like. Oh, I, to be honest, it's, 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 it does kind of fry your brain a little bit. It's it's basically it's all about this thing called deep learning, where you 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 teach this. It's essentially software. It's it's a it's a you know computer brain that that learns from the, the stuff you feed into it, and that can be as wide a ranging array of things or as small and narrower thing. But obviously, the, the narrower it is the the less it learns. So if you feed more into it, it learns, and then it, 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 you know, you can set parameters and all this kind of stuff. And out the other end, it'll, it'll feed you, you know, bits of musical melodies or whatever it is, rhythms that it generates. So it, it's all based around that, really. And it, it's interesting, actually. That I mean, I, I don't know where John's at with that at the minute. It's, it's all um, I've not heard about it for a while from John, but. I was listening to, I think it was Six Music this week. Um, somebody's just released an album or put an album out based on, um, you know, the, the whole rock and roll thing where those people died when they were 27. So like mm, and mm. Janis Joplin and uh, Jim Morrison and all this and uh, Kurt Cobain and stuff. So they've taken this concept of um, the, the people who, who died at 27 and what they may have gone on to do. And they've used artificial, artificial intelligence to to learn from all the stuff that they did do when they were alive and then made it spit something out the other end that could be something they might have gone on to do if they had they lived. <laughs> and one of the things they played on the radio was a Nirvana track. And it's, it's I mean, it's basically just taking all the Nirvana songs and cut them up and put them back together in a slightly different arrangement. And so it sounds like Nirvana, but it's it's not a Nirvana song. It's really crazy. So it's, it's all that kind of that kind of world really it's uh, it's it's a strange a strange thing and and i was i was talking about it with uh, with my wife at the time and we were saying well you know it's like where does it kind of where does it leave creative people you know our car computers and and artificial intelligence is, is it going to take away the creativity but then the thing i was saying was that actually it, it can mimic it and it can predict stuff but it's never going to invent it in the first place mm. means mm. so you're always going to have have a the, the human angle that's inventing this stuff because the computer can't just invent it it has to learn from from what's gone before so i don't know it's it's, it's a it's a it's just a, a whole rabbit hole of stuff that if you once you start going down it it's just yeah just it fries your brain that's the thing about the music industry, isn't it? If you die at 27 and you're someone like Amy Winehouse or Ian Curtis or whatever, they will forever dig out demos you did, offcuts you did, and put that out as albums. And if you're lucky, you might even do a hologram tour. It's like a live. <laughs> so maybe that's the next thing that when an artist dies now, it's well, you can carry on releasing albums. We'll just mm. we'll just do it algorithmically. In fact, it's probably the future for all of us as human beings. Like, yeah. you can now animate old pictures of your relatives or something. I think now yeah, yeah, and have yeah. conversations with them. So yeah, you know, you're getting old when oh, you start. Wow. It's like the Grandpa Simpson meme, isn't it? You know, old man, <laughs> old man gets angry at cloud. You're kind of in. Yeah. You're kind of getting into that territory. Yeah, it's it's mind-boggling, isn't it? And it's slightly frightening, but in a way it's you know it's slightly interesting as well isn't it that you know what could be you know i don't know i don't know 
but yeah, I think it's probably a good place to uh, to close there, Ed. Bring it back into the now and for your fortune favors. <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, really looking forward to uh, to seeing you when you get back out on the road. And thanks for joining us tonight. It's been a great trip down uh, Revender's memory lane, I guess. <laughs> yeah, no, pleasure. Thanks. Good to talk. Yeah, thanks, Ed. So speaking of fortune favors the brave, um, I think it's really interesting for me to hear um, you know, around the kind of the point around confidence to do a solo album. You know, this guy has been a top level musician and he's had gold albums and top 10 singles over the last 15 years. But, you know, him speaking about having to kind of dig deep, I guess, and find that confidence to kind of put himself out there as a solo artist was quite interesting to me. Yeah. And I think when I was listening to that, it reminded me of a conversation we had on the show a few weeks back. You know, obviously you've not been in a, unfortunately, a top 10 charting band yet. You've still got time, but you know, you have been a, a singer at various points in your life. And recently, I think you've been finding that kind of confidence and bravery even to, you know, get behind the mic and, and start singing, recording stuff and playing it to people. And yeah, I think there might be a bit of an affinity there uh, in terms of your situation and his, you know. A hundred percent. You know, it's taken me 34 years to find that confidence to just be like, nah, sod it, I'm going to do it. And I'm not, I'm not really care what people think because, you know, having that having that I don't even know if it's confidence but it's you know guess the ability like creating the ability to be able to do it just feels so liberating of course you're going to get people who don't like what you do but that's you know if everyone liked the same thing in life then the world would be a very boring and different place wouldn't it so um yeah definitely there's definitely an affinity there and not even just in singing as well you know things like interviewing Rick you know we we've started doing a load of interviews over the last couple of years it even took a lot of time for me to kind of feel confident with being able to be kind of an authority with interviewing someone it's, it's sort of to me it's a very similar thing I mean without getting too psychoanalysis it's interesting what you say there in terms of the barriers to it you know is it that you don't realize quite how good you are as a singer or is it that you can hear the criticism of people who wouldn't like it and that 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 fills your head more than the praise that you would get from people who would like it it's not even the criticism of other people, it's the inner critique of myself. So I'll listen to something back and go, oh, no, that sounds ter terrible. Whereas someone else will listen to it and go, I can't find a fault in that. Um, I'm, I put a lot of pressure on myself uh, w with whatever I do, just naturally, which is really annoying and can sometimes hold me back and be detrimental to, to kind of like progress, I guess. And that's the thing for me that I need to get over because, you know, what you can hear, other people can't. And that's the same in, you know, watching myself back doing an interview on video, I will notice the kind of subtle uh, mannerisms that I pick up on and, and, and think of perceive as negative where other people just wouldn't think that at all so mm. it's all about getting that kind of negativity about yourself out of your head and I think that's the the key thing um, other people might be different but for me that's been the kind of key thing to just go let it go it's okay <laughs> mm. and now you mentioned that you remind me a few months ago there's a tweet from a guy uh, called Niall Doherty who works used to work for Q magazine obviously Q's kind of sadly close and he, he put this tweet out and he's a very experienced interviewer probably been doing it even many more years than me and he said something on the lines of I'll never get over that sense of dread just before you do an interview where you completely question whether you can do what whether you can actually do it and I was like yeah that, that is exactly how you feel before even some of the most straightforward you might think interviews you have that second where you go oh, hang on do I really know what I'm doing here do I even know do I know what the questions are got the right questions five minutes in you forget all that and, and you're away. But yeah. you're right, e even the most experienced of interviewers, I think, get that, just get that wobble sometimes of like, oh, 
oh shit, what am I actually doing here? Oh, it's horrible. Some of the demo tapes interviews, I've kind of sat there before going, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Like almost kind of felt sick and then sort of got got started talking to people and be like, oh my God, this is the nicest interview ever because they're just a nice, normal person. Um, But yeah, I think everyone has it. And I think you wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't be human if we didn't have that, would we? We'd all be kind of going around as robots, which would be very boring. Yeah, I think I think I think that to conclude this this kind of, sort of section of the podcast, I guess it's that it's that it's that honesty, isn't it? About it, not everyone's honest about feeling like that. A lot of people put a curtain up. I know this is the easiest thing in the world. Where actually, yeah, I think Ed's honesty around this was was quite refreshing. And I think the other thing that that kind of came out of this for me was kind of how people can hide in plain sight in bands, you know. And it's quite rare. I was thinking about it, it's quite rare for not for front men to go soloing bands, but sometimes guitarists or bassists or drummers. It does happen. And you know, I was thinking Serge from Kasabian put a solo album out a few years ago, although he's he's such a, he's almost a front man of Kasabian alongside Tom in kind of a Noel Liam sort of way. But, you know, all the members of The Strokes have done solo albums, John Hassel from The Libertines. But outside of some of those big bands, you don't necessarily hear of it happening that often, do you, of guitarists going solo? No, not really. Uh, which which is a shame, really. So hopefully, we'll, you know, we'll see more of this. But it's cool. Also, another thing I loved hearing about this uh, this interview was about kind of what Alex Turner was like back in his pre Arctic Monkeys days. You know, in terms of you know he's keen to learn, but just sort of kind of watching what his peers were doing. And you all, you often get that, don't you, with kind of the people that do do really well are the ones that are just sitting there and observing and kind of taking it all in like a sponge. It could be you know it could be the quiet ones that you don't really realise are slowly taking it all in and kind of plotting their plotting their rise to the top but I've also found that quite interesting because you wouldn't think that would you knowing what Alex Turner is now and the kind of presence that he's got would you no and I think that's kind of how he's grown as a musician and as a frontman and this to me is almost like you know when I first saw them play live back in kind of 2005 you know he had a level of confidence then that grew into what he is now but clearly there was a lot that went on before that as well and as Ed was saying you know he wouldn't necessarily even be recording on some of these tracks he'd just want to be in the studio and working out what how does a session work you know what what happens when you record a demo and I think you've got it spot on there and so just being a sponge for information and knowledge and sometimes they're the smartest people aren't they not the ones who are necessarily throwing themselves into everything all the time the ones who are just sit back and watching and learning and then kind of finding their moment to strike I suppose. Uh, We've done a load of Sheffield artists now and I know Rick a few months ago you kind of came to me and said I really want to do a kind of whole thing on the Sheffield scenes and it started off with the Rev John McClure and his brother Chris McClure he was talking about uh, mental health which was kind of the first foray into the mental health that we started talking about in the music industry as well which was great and we've also had the Long Blondes which offered a bit of a different perspective on the Sheffield scene a bit of a different scene to, to, to some of the bands that we've talked about before but you know we could probably do a whole podcast on Sheffield and I think we've kind of done them all or have we you know if we haven't then do feel free to get in touch and let us know because we are very open to doing some more uh we you can email us on demotapespod at gmail.com or we're on instagram at demotapespod and twitter which is the same handle or we have our personal handles as well on instagram i am at i am sarah jane kemp and rick is on twitter only at rick underscore j underscore martin absolutely yeah but i guess yeah that's probably all we've got time for this week in the meantime now you've finished this show go and listen to ed's debut album fortune favors it's on all good streaming platforms and record shops now but otherwise we'll see you on the next episode see ya bye